Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, a federal court in Orlando has ruled that a colonial-era shipwreck found off of Cape Canaveral belongs to France. Many of us believe it is probably the missing 1564 flagship of Jean Ribot. The temporary exhibition Greetings from Florida is at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. It's an exhibit that looks at the 1950s tourism boom in Florida. So that was post-World War II, pre-Disney. And we'll discuss early 20th century architect Elton Moten, who designed much of the city of Sanford. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. This 16th century French dance music was popular when Jean Rabot brought French Huguenots to Florida to establish a colony here. A federal court in Orlando has ruled that a colonial-era shipwreck found off of Cape Canaveral belongs to France. Historical archaeologist Gerald T. Milanich is on the advisory board of the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute. Many of us believe it is probably the missing 1564 uh, flagship of Jean Ribot, uh, the Frenchman who uh, was responsible ultimately for the Fort Caroline uh, French colony on the St. John's River. He got caught in a hurricane, washed ashore, uh, but they showed in the media a, under a picture of this huge stone stele, just like the ones that are uh, appearing in engravings of the colony. So here was one on Ribot's ship, we think Ribot's ship that uh, wrecked right here in old Brevard County. The salvage company Global Marine Exploration, or GME, was granted a permit by the state of Florida to look for shipwrecks and artifacts off of Cape Canaveral, where Ribot's ships had sunk. In July 2016, GME announced that their search had been successful. In addition to the stone monument with a French fleur-de-lis carved into it, the treasure hunters had spotted three decorated brass cannons, 19 iron cannons, 12 anchors, a 39-inch grinding wheel, as well as scattered ballast and munitions. GME had hoped to get a permit to salvage the artifacts so they could sell them. A company spokesman estimated the value of just one of the brass cannons found at $1 million. In November of 2016, France announced that they were claiming ownership of the artifacts, and the state of Florida supported that claim. France was more interested in preserving and displaying the artifacts for the public than in their monetary value. GME argued that the French artifacts could have been on a Spanish ship, which would invalidate France's claim. Following the U.S. Sunken Military Craft Act, U.S. Middle District Court of Florida Magistrate Carla Spaulding ruled that the shipwreck did belong to France. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. He's also editor of the book, French Florida. 
Ben, let's get some historical background. Spain had claimed ownership of La Florida in 1513 when Juan Ponce de Leon gave the state its name. What were the French doing here? Well, the French were actually uh, coming over during a time of a lot of upheaval in Europe, during these great religious wars between the Catholics and, and the Protestants. And in France, and in uh, particular cities in France, a group known as the Huguenots began to take hold and actually controlled a number of cities. The, the name Huguenot is applied to the group that specifically followed the uh, teachings of John Calvin. And a lot of the Huguenots were running into armed opposition in France. So a lot of these people were seeking new land in the New World, in, in what would become North America, to try and settle and, and practice essentially religious freedom. The French were seeking colonies in the New World. And as you said, the Spanish had laid claim to La Florida, which, uh, according to the Spanish at that time, that covered all of the known continent of North America, which included the peninsula of Florida. But unfortunately, the, the Spanish had not succeeded in creating any kind of longstanding colony. So the French came into uh, and actually landed near present-day Jacksonville at the mouth of the St. John's River in 1562. And they did some exploring up the river a little bit along the eastern coast of what is now uh, Florida and southeast Georgia. And eventually they headed north to present-day Paris Island, South Carolina, and they established a, a small colony there that they called Charles Fort in 1562. A number of the French ships then went back to France to try and, and resupply the, the small colony. They were held up for quite a while, and the colony at Charles Fort essentially failed. The few survivors tried to make their way south to present-day Jacksonville to establish a small colony there. And it wasn't until much later, until 1564, that the French were able to come back to Florida and again attempt to establish a colony that was free from the control of the Roman Catholic Church. As you mentioned, the, the French Huguenots were part of the Protestant Reformation movement where different new Christian denominations were protesting various aspects of the Roman Catholic Church or trying to reform Christianity. The Spanish were Catholic, participating in the Church's counter-Reformation movement, which sought to retain the Catholic Church's power. Part of that effort was colonization, and that included spreading Roman Catholicism to the New World. So the Spanish not only saw these French Huguenots as encroaching on their land, they saw the French as religious heretics as well. So the Spanish and French were adversaries on, on multiple levels. What ended up happening in Florida at what would become Fort Caroline in present-day Jacksonville is really a spillover of what's happening in Europe. So the incidents in Florida are on a much smaller scale, but they're highlighting much broader international events that are occurring in Europe at the time. So as you said, the Spanish uh, had laid claim to essentially the entire known continent of Florida, but they didn't establish any kind of foothold. So without any kind of defenses, uh, essentially the territory was open for colonization. Anybody could sort of make their way into the territory and try and establish a colony. In Florida at that time in the 16th century, there were still tens of thousands of, of indigenous peoples that lived in the area. So these Europeans that were coming in were met with a lot of very harsh living conditions. They were trying to establish a colony with very little knowledge of the area. So when the French came in, not only did they have the, the Spanish to worry about, but they had the environment to worry about as well. And the Spanish were, were certainly aware of that. There were a number of, of failed Spanish expeditions in the early part of the 16th century. So by the time that the French established Fort Caroline in present-day Northeast Florida in 1564, they were really facing an uphill battle. 
So in 1564, when they established Fort Caroline, the leader of the expedition, uh, Jean Rabot, was was tied up in England. He was trying to resupply this colony because they didn't want what had happened in Charlesfort to happen in Florida. And again, because of the events that were going on in Europe, a lot of this fighting in cities in France, Rabot could not get back to Florida. So the colony really suffered. So for about a year, they were able to survive on the uh, stores that they had brought over from Europe. But they were also beginning to trade with some of the indigenous populations, the, the Timucuan-speaking people that lived in northeast Florida. So they were surviving, but they really needed those reinforcements. And what happened in northeast Florida is really a combination of events, a lot of kind of bad timing, if you will. So a lot of things happening at one time. When Rabot finally made it back to Florida, this was in August of 1565. This is over a year from when the French originally left the colonists there. The colonists were in bad shape, so they were happy, but they they were hopeful. But Rabot understood that the Spanish were, were hot on their heels. There were pirates that were in the area, and there were people who had essentially transferred the information to the Spanish. And the Spanish caught wind of this in, in Cuba, and they knew that they had to expel the French who were invading on their land, essentially. But they were also spreading this Protestant movement. They were heretics, and the, the Spanish monarchy wanted them wiped off the map. So when Menendez uh, finally encountered the, the Fort Caroline colony in September of 1565, there was a brief skirmish between Rabot's ships, who had literally just landed. I mean, within a couple of weeks, they hadn't really unloaded the ships for the most part. They had just landed. And here these colonists are now having to fight the Spanish. So it all happens in a very short amount of time. There's a lot of action at the mouth of the St. John's River. There's a brief naval skirmish. And then Menendez actually heads south to the next inlet south of what is now the, the St. John's River inlet. And that becomes uh, St. Augustine. Uh, he essentially establishes a foothold within a, a protected inlet area. And in doing so, he establishes St. Augustine. He establishes this small colony to act as essentially a stop-off point so that he can then attack Fort Caroline um, over land. He sends his army north from present-day St. Augustine towards Jacksonville to attack the fort because he knew that Rabot had followed him in his ships. So he understood that Rabot's, most of Rabot's French forces were on their ships and they were caught up in a storm that had happened about this same time period. And most of those ships were driven south and Rabot's ships were too big to get over the bar into St. Augustine. So they ended up going a little bit further south. Menendez sends his men overland and they attack the lightly guarded Fort Caroline and very easily capture the fort. They kill all of the survivors there, then head back to their makeshift fort in, in what would become St. Augustine. And at the same time, Rabot's ships were caught by what we believe was a hurricane that struck at, at that time period and, and destroyed his ships further south near Cape Canaveral, uh, somewhere around the, the Cape Canaveral area. A number of the men did survive. Some did perish. A number of the men survived. They hastily established a small encampment, kind of a maroon encampment, and they were um, badly beat up. They were hungry. So they started heading back north, hoping that they could circumvent the Spanish and make their way back to Jacksonville, hoping that Fort Caroline had not been destroyed. Unfortunately, it was. And, and they met with the Spanish shortly after that period, at, uh, just south of St. Augustine. Now, Menendez gave the Huguenots the opportunity to uh, convert to Catholicism, but very few were spared, right? It was just a handful of musicians that actually survived this, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so when the when the Spanish actually got wind of the maroon sailors who were making their way overland up north, 
he sent a group of soldiers down south, and, and Menendez went with them. And you're right, he gave them that option. He said, well, you can convert to Catholicism. And, you know, thinking about that today, when, when faced with death, you would assume that someone would say, oh, sure, you know, I'm Catholic in name only. But again, we have to put ourselves in the, the perspective of someone living in the 16th century, coming from that, that world, that, that old European world mentality when religion was very much a fabric of one's life. It was your worldview, it was your understanding. So the Reformation that was happening in Europe, that most of these people that were part of the Rabot expedition, including Laudonniere, who was his uh, second in command, uh, and it was at one point in command of Fort Caroline, these people grew up within the Huguenot understanding of, of religion and, and Christianity. So even in name only, they wouldn't give that up. So a number of, of the Frenchmen were killed. They were marched over the dunes and ceremoniously killed, essentially. And, and that inlet where they met is now known as Matanzas Inlet. It was named Matanzas by the Spanish, which means massacre, because that's where the French Huguenots were massacred in 1565. And you're right, there were a few survivors who ended up probably living with the Spanish. Some of them may have made their way back to Europe. But there are a couple of people in particular who survived the initial onslaught on Fort Caroline earlier on in, in uh, 1565, and that included a gentleman who I just named, uh, René de Laudonniere, and he was actually in command of Fort Caroline for that year period before Rabot could come back to refit the colony. And Laudonniere, uh, with a few other of the Frenchmen, were able to escape on a, on a small boat during the attack. And because Menendez had followed the French overland, he didn't take his ships, he could not follow the Frenchmen in their one boat. They were able to escape there were two boats, actually, that were able to escape. They made their way back to Europe and, of course, back to France and could tell the story, essentially, of, of what had happened. And they wrote down their story. So those are the few, uh, some of the few surviving primary source accounts that we have of the interaction between the, the Spanish and the French. Uh, but so much happened in a very short amount of time that it really changed the course of history in a matter of months because we could have had a very, very different colonial history and, and possibly different contemporary history had things been uh, slightly different on either side. Now, prior to Don Pedro Menendez de Avales coming to Florida, other Spanish conquistadors had attempted to establish colonies here and, and failed. After defeating the French, Menendez was able to establish the first permanent, continuous European settlement in what is now the United States. Yeah, that's right. And that's probably one of the most important side effects, if you will, of, of this interaction and this altercation between the French and Spanish in 1565. As I said before, when Menendez first encountered uh, the French at Fort Caroline, there was a brief naval skirmish, but he never came ashore. He actually went south, landed at the next inlet, which uh, is now essentially St. Augustine. They came ashore, they built a small fort, and they kind of regrouped. And uh, the, this was the storm season, so storms were coming in. And that was a, a, a big part of the strategy, really, was to get ashore, to regroup, and then attack Fort Caroline Overland. But when he did that, he established what would become, as you said, the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in North America because the Spanish stayed there. It became St. Augustine. Now, it's not the original site. St. Augustine is a little bit away from where they first landed, but it's within the same general vicinity. So St. Augustine, if you were to visit today, you can just imagine what that was like back in, in 1565 when, when Menendez first landed with the intent of uh, destroying the, the French settlement, pushing them off the map. And as I said before, it changed the course of, of history, of Florida history and, and international history, really. And it's believed that this recently discovered shipwreck is Jean Rabot's resupply ship, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Looking at the available historical records, uh, the archaeological record, there there are artifacts that that actually uh, survive from that maroon colony. So when Rabot wrecked uh, near Cape Canaveral, the survivors came ashore and they set up a small encampment. And there are actually artifacts. There are French coins that were found within the last few decades. And, and all of this kind of points to the, the fact that, yes, a ship from that time period is, is very likely linked to, to the ill-fated uh, Rabot expedition. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. He's also editor of the book French Florida. We also spoke with historical archaeologist Jerry Milanich about the recent ruling by a federal court in Orlando that a colonial-era shipwreck found off of Cape Canaveral belongs to France. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Down to Florida. We welcome you to the Sunshine State. They're kicking back and soaking up the rays every day in Florida. Joining us now is Madeline Khaleesi, director of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco. Madeline, one of the temporary exhibits currently on display at the museum is called Greetings from Florida. That's right, Ben. It's an exhibit that looks at the 1950s tourism boom in Florida. So that was post-World War II, pre-Disney. And during that time, a wide array of attractions and roadside anomalies popped up along the highways so that guests coming into Florida could see all these entertaining attractions, mostly focused on the natural elements of Florida, alligator farms, uh, parrot jungles, anything that really highlighted the still exotic, still kind of wild aspects of Florida, because it still was a very different destination for, for most folks, even, even in the 1950s. Now, there are a lot of really interesting objects and artifacts in the Greetings from Florida exhibit. What are some of the items you have on display? So most of the items actually came from a donor and collector named Sandy Barnes. There's over 250 plates and lighters, salt and pepper shakers. There's a doll with a Florida print dress. There's textiles, primarily souvenir plates. And these were items that were created by those roadside attractions to promote their destinations. So they'll incorporate more than one attraction. You might see Cypress Gardens and Bach Tower and Marine Land all incorporated into a fun souvenir that guests could take home. Additionally, we have from our own collection a can of Florida sunshine, and uh, that's a, a really neat piece. The idea is you would send it up to folks up north or take it back with you to a colder destination, and it has kind of an interesting description on the back recommending that you don't give it to northerners because they'll be so jealous of the sunshine that they'll uh, get very depressed. <laughs> Now, Madeline, these aren't really art objects that you have on display here. They're really kind of kitschy pieces, right? 
They are. They're really fun. We have all these bright lighters. Some of them are mini versions, and there's one that's actually shaped like an alligator. Uh, alligators are pretty popular. There's a, for some reason, a dachshund salt and pepper shaker, and then one that is a palm tree, and the coconuts are the shakers. There's uh, actually a flock of flamingos in the middle of the room. <laughs> that's from us. It has a flamboyant on crocheted grass. So these flamingos were actually developed in Massachusetts, but they very quickly became associated with Florida and the exotic Florida lifestyle. So we put some lawn flamingos in there. We also have plates that do highlight some of the more popular destinations like Marineland and Cypress Gardens, but some of them are a little bit more obscure, like Marco Polo Land, which took you through the travels of Marco Polo. There are these hanging velvet pieces, and those have places like Lion Country Safari or some roadside attractions that aren't there anymore, like a Western destination. So they're really beautiful and interesting, but more kitschy, <laughs> I would say. Now, there are several uh, fun interactive activities that accompany this exhibit. Uh, how can visitors participate? It is a very interactive exhibit. It's very colorful and photogenic with flamingos, and there's a plate decorating station, which I think has been my favorite component because guests have gotten very creative. Uh, kids and adults have created their own souvenir plates with alligators and turtles and flamingos and fish, and that's really fantastic. We also have a series of jars with those popular locations, and people have been dropping marbles into the ones they've visited, which has been very interesting. So far, St. Augustine is in the lead with the most visitors. And then we have an area where you can answer a prompt. So that prompt is, what is your first Florida memory? And it has been as simple as rain or my grandparents or as complicated as visiting, uh, going on the Florida border and getting orange juice. And we've had people responding online as well. So we've gotten some really great responses that way. Great. Well, Madeline, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Madeline Khaleesi is director of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco. Every day in Florida It's like a Caribbean holiday Every day in Florida This is Florida Frontiers. Several blocks of buildings in the downtown Sanford Historic District date from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Many of those buildings were designed by architect Elton Moten. Holly Baker is a graduate student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. I recently sat down with Christine Dalton, Historic Preservation Officer and Community Planner for the City of Sanford, Florida. She talked with me about Elton Moten, a prolific architect from Sanford, Florida. So Elton Moten was basically Sanford's architect. The architect, the go-to architect in Sanford from about 1916 through 1955. He designed many of the landmark buildings in town and his designs run the gamut from civic, residential, commercial, uh, to religious architecture. So he designed many churches, civic buildings. He designed the 1920s City Hall, the Hotel Forest Lake, the Band Shell in the 20s. When you go further in his career, he designed Seminole Memorial Hospital in 1955. So his range was very broad. Residential architecture, the religious architecture, he designed Holy Cross, 
So he was a very prolific architect, even commercial buildings downtown. If you took out all the Elton Moten buildings in historic Sanford, you would barely have a historic Sanford left. So that's how prolific Elton Moten was. As Christine Dalton explains, Elton Moten's father, James Moten, laid the foundation for Sanford as it is known today. So Elton Moten's father, James Moten, was actually the superintendent of basically what is now public works. So he was the person who laid out all the streets of the city and really laid Sanford out as we mostly know it today. The Grid Street Network in a lot of what we see out there was Elton Moten's father. So they moved here to Sanford from Sharon, Pennsylvania when Elton Moten was 10. So this was 1903 and Elton Moten grew up seeing this city being shaped by his father's work. During this time period, many architects didn't have formal training. They didn't get a degree in architecture. They were, you know, kind of self-taught, usually had a background in art or, you know, kind of art history and in architecture. So a lot of what he learned how to do with architecture is just really being around the drafting process and in his father's work basically so it's interesting that his father's work laid out you know the streets for this town and then he later placed many of the buildings along those streets elton moton was a versatile architect who designed buildings in a variety of styles christine dalton has more he didn't have any specific style he really was the architect of that time period. So whatever was popular during that time period was what Moton was working on. So in the 1920s when the Spanish styles, you know, very romantic Spanish style, Spanish eclectic, Mediterranean revival, all of those styles, he tended to, to work in those styles. Much of Moton's work was really driven by what the client wanted. So he was very much, I'm going to please the client and, and all of that. So. He doesn't have his own style that he develops, but what I will say about him is that he kept up on the cutting edge of what was happening in architecture. So you can actually stand in the middle of First Street and see the Mayfair Inn, as it's affectionately called, the old 1920s Hotel Forest Lake, and you can see Seminole Memorial Hospital. And the scale and the massing of those two buildings is very similar, but they were designed 30 years apart from each other and their architectural styles are completely different. So he really kept up with what was happening in architecture and he kind of followed the trends that were happening and kept informed of the trends. Elton Moten designed buildings in other cities, including Birmingham, Alabama, Chicago, Illinois, and Louisville, Kentucky. During these periods away from home, Moten wrote frequent letters to his wife and family. The letters give a glimpse into life during World Wars I and II, the Florida land boom, and the Great Depression. Christine Dalton. Yes, it's very interesting because I have a series of letters. I refer to them as letters to Lucy that I have been entrusted with by the family. And whenever he would have to leave Sanford because work wasn't robust enough in Sanford, he would write letters to his wife, Lucy. So they married in 1917, and that's when the letters start. First, he moved to Pennsylvania. So in the time that he moved to Pennsylvania, where his family was originally from, Sharon, Pennsylvania, and he was establishing himself before he had his wife come join him, he would write letters to her. There's another time where work is not going so well in Sanford and he leaves and, and moves to Birmingham, Alabama and does architecture in Birmingham. The third time he leaves, he goes to Chicago, right smack in the middle of the Great Depression. 
So those letters are very interesting because they're a snapshot of this time period from 1917 through World War II. The last letter is, is during World War II where he leaves and he's writing letters home to his wife telling her about whatever's happening in society at the time, including how much the brand new radio cost and what Amos and Andy did on the radio show that evening. While some of the buildings designed by Elton Moton no longer exist, such as the original Sanford City Hall building and the old Seminole High School on French Avenue, his architectural influence can still be seen in Sanford today in the remaining historic buildings that he designed. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We hope you'll join us right here again next week. Until then, you can join the conversation on Facebook and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also listen to the program as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are designed by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.